Welcome friends, this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com coming to you in March of 2020 in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic panic. And I'm coming to you today with a little reminder from May of 2009, 11 years ago, when we were in the throes of another pandemic panic. Do you remember the swine flu panic of 2009? I certainly do, because I was here covering it on CorbettReport.com. As part of my coverage, I did episode 86 of the Corbett Report podcast on medical martial law. And we're going to listen to just a segment of that podcast today, uh, specifically dealing with the infrastructure, the legislative infrastructure for medical martial law that was laid out in that time frame of the early 2000s and was exacerbated by that pandemic panic of 2009. I think it's particularly instructive to go back and to look at how what we are experiencing right now and the medical martial law scenario that is coming into view right now was carefully laid out over a period of decades to arrive at this spot. We didn't just arrive here overnight. So it is important to look back at this. I will suggest you go back and listen to the entire episode 86 where I go into more of the history of various pandemic panics and uh, some of the virology that was going on in the early 2000s to resurrect the old Spanish flu and other such monstrosities in the name of scientific research, of course. Uh, some very interesting and I think valuable nuggets in there, but we're just going to listen to a segment today, as I say, particularly pertaining to that implementation of medical martial law. And this is an example of uh, video editor Brock West going and reviving some of the old podcasts, putting some images and video on top of it to make it uh, representable to the video audience. Uh, so for people who don't know, I am posting this to the main Corbett Report channel. If you are on GooTube, uh, you may not know I have a secondary channel where we're often post posting interviews and uh, old podcast episodes, etc. For example, my my conversation several years ago during the Ebola freakout of 2014 with Tim Kilkenny about the movie Contagion for the Film Literature New World Order series. That recently went up and I see that Contagion is trending. It's now one of the top streamed uh, movies on various platforms right now because people are panicking once again. It is important to understand how we got to where we are today, that it didn't just happen overnight, that the groundwork and infrastructure has been laid for a very long time. So I hope this will help to do that. That being said, enjoy the podcast. Also in Massachusetts, the legislature is acting rapidly on a bill updating what the state can do at a public health emergency. That bill has languished on Beacon Hill for some time, but with the flu outbreak, it's now racing through the legislature. NECN's Josh Brugadier is at the State House in Boston tonight. Josh? R.D., the state Senate passed this bill, Bill 2028, today. They did so unanimously, and it gives the governor and the health commissioner the power to act in the public's interest in case in any kind of medical emergency. Timing sped up a hearing and ultimately unanimous Senate approval of the Pandemic and Disaster Preparation and Response Bill in Massachusetts. The bill gives the public health commissioner the discretion to respond to an outbreak like the kind going on in Mexico, to close or evacuate buildings, enter private property, isolate or quarantine people, and to get and distribute meds and vaccines. A registry of Massachusetts volunteers would be created and would be activated in case of emergency. Plus, the commissioner could request personnel from other states. The bill also protects health care workers from liability. 
Concerns about the spread of swine flu meant lawmakers, such as Worcester County Democrat Richard Moore, didn't want to take any chances. It's too bad that we have to have something like that pending to get us to finally act, but uh, we were, this was actually on, on the calendar before that became a news story, but so it's, uh, it's not that it's totally that, but it does give us another, another reason why it's a good idea to have this on the books. NRD, the bill has actually passed the Senate a couple times the past few years, but has never passed both the Senate and the House. The House is expected to take up the bill sometime this week. Josh, any penalty if you don't follow the emergency declaration rules? It can actually get to be a pretty severe penalty because for each day someone didn't follow a rule, for example, if somebody was asked to be quarantined and they decided not to follow that, it could be a fine of up to $1,000 per day they didn't follow and also up to 30 days in prison. Josh Brogadier on Beacon Hill tonight. Thank you. Now, obviously, martial law is an issue that we've been addressing on the Corbett Report podcast for some time and, of course, in various articles and videos that we've also created in the past but medical martial law is an issue that not many researchers have been devoting a significant amount of attention to, with some notable exceptions. But to trace the idea of medical martial law, or the idea that government can quarantine and force medicate people against their wishes in the event of a public health emergency, of course, we can trace the roots back to those fevered and panicked days in the wake of 9-11, when the idea of bioterrorism was very much on the tips of many people's tongues. And in the wake of that horrendous attack on the United States, and of course the anthrax attack, which later turned out to be from Fort Detrick and was eventually pinned on Bruce Ivins, although, of course, there are some very big questions surrounding that. But at any rate, in the wake of all that panic, something called the Model State Emergency Health Powers Act was drafted by something called the Center for Law and the Public's Health at Georgetown and John Hopkins Universities. Now, this was done in conjunction with the Center for Disease Control, and as its name would suggest, it basically serves as a model for states to use to draft up their own Emergency Health Powers Acts. And in fact, the uh, Center for Law and the Public's Health, which can be found at publichealthlaw.net, likes to brag that this particular model act has been now implemented and adopted by over 40 states in the Union. So it's quite an influential document. And what does this document say about things that the government should be able to do in the event of a, pu of a public health emergency? Well, section 603 of the document under the heading Vaccination and Treatment reads the following, quote, During a state of public health emergency, the public health authority may exercise the following emergency powers over persons as necessary to address the public health emergency. A. Vaccination to vaccinate persons as protection against infectious disease and to prevent the spread of contagious or possible contagious disease. 1. Vaccination may be performed by any qualified person authorized to do so by the public health authority. 2. A vaccine to be administered must not be such as is reasonably likely to lead to serious harm to the affected individual. 3. To prevent the spread of contagious or possibly contagious disease, the public health authority may isolate or quarantine, pursuant to section 604, persons who are unable or unwilling for reasons of health, religion, or conscience to undergo vaccinations pursuant to this section. 
end quote. Yes, so basically in layman's terms, either roll up your sleeve and take the shot, or they're going to lock you in a room somewhere, or perhaps even in a camp with the other people who won't take their shots. Now, of course, this addresses some very fundamental issues about the existence or lack thereof of actual freedom, and the times and situations in which the government can come in and force people to do things against their will. Now, I think every reasonable person would admit that there are reasonable situations in which a reasonably acting government could reasonably use reasonable procedures to make people act reasonably. But this is not a reasonable world. And we have to, if we are being fully serious and looking at these issues in the full knowledge of what has happened in the past, question the motives and motivations of governments that will lie to us time and time and time again. Of course, such questioning was conducted by Michael Chosodovsky of globalresearch.ca in an October 2005 article called Martial Law and the Avian Flu Pandemic. Quote, the threat of the avian flu pandemic is real. Until recently, national governments and the WHO have dismissed the seriousness of the crisis. The public has been misinformed. The issue has been barely mentioned by the media. Why all of a sudden is avian flu on the presidential agenda? The issue was placed on the agenda of the president's White House press conference, there was nothing spontaneous in the White House journalists questioned President Bush, which explicitly pointed to a role for the country's defense assets in the case of a pandemic. We are not dealing with an off-the-cuff statement. Both the question, as well as Bush's response calling for a greater role for the military, had been prepared in advance. The statement of President Bush suggests the enactment of martial law in the case of an avian flu outbreak. Martial law could also be established, using the pretext of an outbreak of avian flu in foreign countries and its potential impacts on the U.S. In other words, the military rather than the country's civilian health authorities would be put in charge. End quote. Now, this story, of course, leads in a pretty obvious line of historical continuity to the September 2007 article from PrisonPlanet.com under the headline, Bush Greases Skids for UN Pandemic Power Grab, best-selling author wouldn't put it past globalists to release virus to capitalize on control. Quote, The World Health Organization and the UN have been handed complete control over response procedures in the event of a pandemic outbreak in the U.S., after an agreement was signed by President Bush at the recent SPP meeting that bypasses congressional approval. We've now got a North American plan for avian and pandemic influenza, and what this plan does is it puts U.S., Canada, and Mexico under the World Health Organization and under the United Nations law and control should there be any health emergency, best-selling author Jerome Corsi told The Alex Jones Show on Friday. Corsi said it was blue helmet time should such an emergency arise and that the origins of the agreement could be traced back to 2005, when President Bush announced a new international partnership on avian and pandemic influenza to a high-level plenary meeting of the UN General Assembly in New York. At the recent SPP meeting in Montebello, Canada, an agreement was signed that establishes UN law, along with regulations by the World Trade Organization and World Health Organization, as supreme over US law during a pandemic, 
and sets the stage for militarizing the management of continental health emergencies, writes Corsi. End quote. Now, there's no doubt that a pandemic, whether real or imagined, whether naturally occurring or manufactured in a vaccine laboratory, whether accidentally released or released on purpose, no matter how such a pandemic or even the perception of a pandemic were to play out, it would play into the hands of the globalists seeking to centralize control and seeking to erase borders for their global governmental institutions. Of course, the World Health Organization is going to play a very important role in any international pandemic, as one would reasonably expect if this were, again, a reasonable world. But of course, in an age where the World Health Organization, the UN, the World Trade Organization, and others are seeking to bring global health regulations in line in such a way as to outlaw public health freedoms and to institute such things as Codex Alimentarius, one could definitely not say that this is a reasonable situation. And as we have seen the preparation and build-up for martial law in the entire Western world over a period of decades, we know that such a situation could not end happily for the average citizen. Just as the creation of a global governmental financial control body will only play into the hands of those seeking to create global government, so a global health emergency can only play into the hands of those seeking to create global governmental controls. And to think that there are not going to be some very significant tests of this type of governmental intervention, military and otherwise, in the lives of average citizens as the result of future pandemics and outbreaks, one need only look at the ways in which this current swine flu panic, again, only resulting in a handful of deaths, there have already been substantial moves made to implement medical martial law, not just the passing of that act in Massachusetts. For one indication of that, we can turn to ComputerWorld.com, April 30th, 2009. If flu threat rises, CDC wants pandemic coordinator in workplace. Another indication for those who might think that this is solely an American issue, comes from an Australian article from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation at abc.net.au from April 28, 2009. Mandatory detention laws for flu sufferers. And, of course, we also have the North Bay Nugget reporting from a Canadian perspective that talks about how the North Bay Perry Sound District Health Unit is setting up flu centers, which will in fact be mass vaccination centers in the event that emergency rooms become overwhelmed by pandemic flu cases. Again, of course, all of these stories and many, many, many more that we don't have time to get into today, but which I leave you to research for yourself, are just data points in a trail that start to form a picture a picture that shows us a very bleak future if and when the governments of the Western world decide to pull the trigger on the pandemic martial law scenario. Again, of course, part of the martial law process, which we've outlined in previous episodes of this podcast, is to indoctrinate and gradually acclimate people to the implementation of martial law. So it's to be expected that the first implementation, or the first two or three implementations will be small-scale 
and generally seen to be mostly effective. Although, of course, there will be much hand-wringing in the media by people pretending to be on our side who will say that perhaps it's going too far to force people into vaccination scenarios or to quarantine them against their will. But eventually, of course, the whole media process will serve only to further cement in the minds of the general public that such steps are necessary. And eventually, by the time the public is acclimated to the idea, then all it would take is the release of a bio-warfare agent, whether from a real bioterrorist group or, as is more often the case by the government, it will be used to affect the full-scale implementation of what they are only beginning to test out at the moment. And of course, just like a martial law scenario that would play out in the event of a terrorist attack, a martial law scenario in the wake of a pandemic attack could only be pulled off if a sufficient percentage of the public were unaware of the ultimate game plan. And of course, that game plan is exactly what was talked about in today's first real news story from Jim Tucker reporting from this year's Bilderberg, and revealing that, yes indeed, top of the agenda is how to exploit the swine flu hysteria to further strengthen the World Health Organization and implement world health regulations. So once again, the swine flu hysteria, which has been fed and fed upon by the controlled corporate media, and has sufficiently served to raise public hysteria, is of course another stepping stone on the way to global government, just like so many other issues have been exploited in exactly this way. So what then can we actually do about this? Well, of course, forewarned is forearmed, Knowledge is power, and we have to inform others about what is really going on. And an absolute cornerstone of this research is the understanding that the vaccines that they're going to try to use in the event of the next pandemic are more likely than not going to hurt people than save them. And we have to expose that by exposing some of the very troubling information about vaccines presented in today's episode. The fact that Baxter shipped out live bird flu to be mixed in with regular flu for the flu shots should be something that we should be screaming from the rooftops to anyone who will listen. That is one of the key stories that shows that even if this was a complete accident, in which case it would just be gross criminal negligence, the fact that it hasn't been touted, it hasn't been cited, it hasn't been written about or talked about in the controlled corporate media is itself a sign that there is a very troubling disconnect between the real world and the world that we are being fed through the TV news and the newspapers. The fact that the Baxter company has been accused of specifically trying to start a pandemic should be, in any reasonable world, the front page headline on every newspaper in the world until some accountability is to be had. But of course, as we know, vaccine manufacturers are given all sorts of indemnity against claims from people who have had ill effects from their nauseous substances. We have to break through and get people to realize that the vaccine manufacturers are very often the cause of the problems, not the solution. 
And, of course, the 1976 swine flu vaccine is a good example of that. And the recent revelation that this swine flu may, in fact, have been developed in a vaccine experimental lab and just accidentally released should be another thing that draws the public's attention towards the fundamental issue of biosafety, which is something which is never mentioned in the news reports. It's always the general public who don't wash their hands who, who, or who don't take their flu shots that are to blame for millions of deaths. At this point, I leave you to go out there and do your own research, but of course, get that research out to others Without exposing others to this information and waking them up to what is really going on, we will not prevail in this fight, and medical martial law will be implemented. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's international forecaster editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com support.